Welcome to a podcast by Gritmakers in the Arts, a national association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Sherilyn Seeley, GIA's program manager. GIA is a community of practice with a shared vision of investing in arts and culture as a strategy for social change. Since 2008, GIA has been elevating racial equity as a critical issue affecting the field. To actualize this work within the sector, GIA published its Racial Equity and Arts Funding Statement of Purpose in 2015. Since then, this journey has reaffirmed the many intersections at play as we leverage our dollars for the deepest impact and continue exploring new ways to be agents of change. This podcast is part of the 2020 Grantmakers in the Arts Racial Equity Podcast Series. In this podcast episode, we are glad to have Denise Brown, Executive Director of Leeway Foundation, and A. Sparks, Chief Executive Officer of the Masto Foundation. We're glad to have them joining us. Today, we will hear from two foundation leaders on what it looks like to live a commitment to challenge power structures that are deeply rooted in the philanthropic sector and keeping community needs at the center. So Denise and Sparks, thank you for joining us today. How are you both showing up? So, again, my name is Denise Brown. I'm the executive director of the Leeway Foundation in Philadelphia. I use she, her pronouns. Um, and how am I showing up today? I, I um, am excited to be part of this conversation and, um, you know, I'm excited to see the ways in which um, Grantmakers in the Arts is continuing this work around racial equity and, and really sort of taking that lead in the field. Um, for myself, you know, in the midst of this pandemic and with um, so much going on related to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, I'm showing up as someone who is um, sort of excited and concerned um, at the same time about so much that I'm seeing going on around me. Great, thank you. So that's how I'm showing up today. <laughs> Um, and this is Sparks for, um, for me. So I, I guess I am showing up to this space today as, um, with all parts of my identity. Um, so as, as a queer, uh, mixed race, uh, light skin, privileged next generation woman in the field of philanthropy and as the executive director of, of my family's foundation, the Masto Foundation, which is a foundation that's rooted in the Japanese American community. And I'm also showing up here with, um, with my experience of, of working in philanthropy for 12 years um, before I took on my family's foundation and with all of those learnings, with reflecting on my uh, family's history, um, with uh, learning about my grandfather as a Japanese American man shortly after World War II and how he created the foundation and um, started doing his philanthropy and and what I learned from uh, hearing that story, um, talking to folks that he worked with and and then trying to implement a lot of those values into our work in grant making today. So showing up with that history of my ancestors as well. Great. Thank you both. We are glad to have you both. And so this episode is part of a, the larger Radical Imaginaries subseries. And so can you tell us a bit about how you would define radical or radical action? Um, what does it even mean to you? 
So as, um, as I was thinking about and, and reflecting on this question, my answers to it didn't come as naturally as some of the other answers or questions. And I think part of that is that um, in philanthropy, uh, particularly family philanthropy, you don't often see the wor words radical action. And so for me, I really think it's the beginning of radical action is having radical thought and not just finding yourself um, paralyzed in a cycle of thinking and processing and doing evaluations and not that analytic way, but yeah. really stepping outside of, of the system of philanthropy that is so pervasive that we don't even realize that, that we're swimming in this pool of normativity that, you know, in many ways has been imposed on us and, and, you know, ducking your head above the water and, and, and looking around and, and reflecting on that and, you know, diving back under um, and reflecting again. And, and all of those steps, I think, are really important to lead to action. But I do see that, that action really is sort of the, the last step in what should be a big shift in ways of thinking. I agree. And, I, and, and I'm sort of thinking about it in the ways in which um, it relates to, you know, sort of people um, within organizations and institutions that are really looking to shift systems um, of oppression and white supremacy. Um, and certainly as we think about this context, this philanthropic context that we're talking about, sure. um, there's room both for um, the radical thought that Sparks is talking about, which is provides the grounding um, that we stand on to move us towards some sort of action within organizations and institutions and thereby shifting the field. Great. And then, so with, with that in mind and thinking about how one must begin with the thinking and then go into the action, um, in terms of your work, how are you prioritizing and practicing radical action? Um, I think for leeway, um, a lot of it had to do with really thinking about uh, the communities that we wanted to uh, make ourselves accessible to. Um, and as a result of that, thinking about how we meet people where they are and change um, sort of processes and structures um, related to our philanthropic practice and process. Um, to sort of shift power um, and um, sort of engage uh, with the community in different ways to actually have them engage as decision makers and um, as, as part of policy makers within our organization as well. Mm -hmm. That's great. And, um, and for, for me, I'd, I'd say that, you know, how are the, uh, and as a reference, the way of, of practicing radical action and uh, recognizing that uh, grant making and the systems that, that we use and what's seen as normal in um, philanthropy are, are actually just a way of doing things, not the way of doing things. And, mm -hmm. and things that were created in a system of homogeneity and of extreme white, white dominance. And so um, a lot of what we're doing right now as a family foundation is one we're very much a huge part of our identity is by being a family foundation from a community of color um, is 
is we're trying to imagine, you know, what would family philanthropy look like actually if instead of 99.9% of the family foundations being white, what if 99.9% .9 of those family foundations were from communities of color? How might um, our giving look different? And, and so for us, that really has encouraged us in creating our practices to not look at the way philanthropy is done and try and shift it to be more equitable, but actually really start with and lead with culture. Um, so whatever the culture of giving is in our family, in the Japanese American diaspora, in uh, the in Japan, and um, creating our our practices um, really, you know, looking at throwing away the rule book completely and thinking, you know, what do we need to do to, to still be uh, legally considered a family foundation, <laughs> um, but, but also creating our way of giving that, that is actually coming authentically from culture and from our family. So mm -hmm. that's, yeah, that's I, what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. I also think that it's, um, that often um, in philanthropy, we think about the action sort of externalizing it. And I think it's also important that we think about sort of internally, um, how are we shifting things? Um, because we don't want to put things in place that are dependent upon a particular staff person or program officer to kind of carry them out. They have to sort of become part of the, the intention of the organization and become embedded in practices so that no matter who's sitting in the chairs there, mm -hmm. um, that that this kind of activity and action will remain a priority. Yeah, no, and I I I want to actually go back to what you were saying, Denise, about internal shifts and structures um, and changes that happen within a foundation. And leeway went through a change back in two thousand five. I want to say two thousand five right mm -hmm. yeah can you talk a yes. little bit about that um sure um leeway was founded over 25 years ago by a philadelphia based artist uh by the name of linda lee alter um mm -hmm. really from her you know sort of out of her personal resources um and the intention was to support women artists because, you know, kind of in keeping with um, sort of the feminist position of the Guerrilla Girls, like where are all the women artists? And um, going through what's being discussed as the largest generational transfer of wealth, her daughter became involved in the foundation um, and became interested in the idea of what would it mean to support artists who were interested in community transformation was the way that she talked about it. Uh -huh. And so the foundation went through a very intentional process over a period of years with focus groups and interviews and, and really engaged with the community about what that shift might be, um, which led to um, Leeway transitioning from being a family foundation to becoming an independent foundation with a community-based board of directors. And so great. both the board and staff of Leeway are majority people of color. Um, and, and I think that we try to sort of consider the intersectionality of arts and culture with a variety of different issues. And so um, we support artists who are kind of working at those various intersections. And so that's, that shift occurred in 2005. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, and with that in mind, so what, 
what ultimately does it take to shift the status quo? Um, you gave an example of what Leeway did just now, Denise, but kind of thinking a little bit more broadly, um, what does it take? This is open to both of you. I mean, I feel like there's often a reluctance to talk about power. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, for me, um, in order to make these kinds of shifts, we have to be willing to engage in those conversations because it really is about shifting power. Um, and folks have to understand that in order to see the kinds of changes that we're talking about, some folks are going to have to be willing to step away um, mm -hmm. and create space um, for new voices and um, people in constituencies to sort of participate in the policy and decision making. I think there's there's been this tendency to engage um, folks from communities of color or, or what are often characterized as marginalized communities in programmatic efforts. Mm -hmm. um, but what really needs to happen is to really think about the ways in which those voices can be engaged in policy um, decisions. Um, and so I think that, you know, certainly Lee Way's history sort of demonstrates how that's possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think for myself personally, um, I, a lot of that was uh, recognizing and acknowledging that the status quo is the way it is for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, and whether we are, uh, you know, actively aware of it or only subconsciously aware of it, that 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 status quo is to maintain power and privilege for um, certain communities and individuals. And, and I think in order to step outside of that, it really requires an acknowledgement that the status quo is not working and it's not working for all of us. So for myself personally, a lot of that was connecting how the struggle, struggles of my community um, are tied, just inextricably tied um, to the struggles of, of other communities. You know, that skin in a very uh, tangible way that, that actually involved a lot more of just being out, being vocal and, and visible in, uh, in, with my identity. Uh, so much of that is about sort of the intersections of different identities. And so me being able to, to hold all those intersections and talk about them. Also, just the power of, of calling people in and not calling people out. How mm -hmm. in ways can you be reflective of yourself as an individual or your work and, and share as opposed to, you know, sort of pushing um, as an individual foundation to do things different. Um, so, so yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. As we think about how the funding is distributed so inequitably, what is the responsibility of funders to commit to justice for black lives? You know, I, I, I think it's a huge responsibility. I think that people really need to be looking at the ways they are holding up the structures of white supremacy and um, what kinds of, um, certainly in this moment, um, what are the things that can be done um, in the shorter term that are going to lead to long-term shifts in these structures. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing leadership from 
philanthropic institutions like the Ford Foundation and McKnight in this recent announcement about their commitment to um, increasing their payout. And, and that's become, you know, sort of a big topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, McKnight, as we you said? look at what, um, yes, McKnight, okay. Ford, okay. Mellon, um, Doris Duke. Mm-hmm. Um, so the organizations that have come together to make this multi-year commitment mm-hmm. um, to not sort of a t- sort of approach the error endowments, but to to sort of find ways to structure um, the sale of bonds so that they'll be able to distribute more money in the next three years. And so um, certainly they have um, amongst them a huge amount of resource to be able to do that. But I think even in the context of smaller uh, foundations and funding institutions, people are really trying to think creatively about how to move money. But yeah. it can't just be about what we're going to be doing in the next six months or the next year. Yes. Um, it's really about what's going to be happening in 2021, 22, and, and beyond that, what people's commitments are. Yep. I've seen some really interesting responses um, from folks in the cultural community um, who are being called upon to be the face of a variety of different kinds of campaigns. You know, mm-hmm. every other organization has put out some sort of support statement. Um, and so I'm curious about what's going to be happening, you know, um, sort of when things settle down a little bit, how, what, what are the ways that people are going to be demonstrating that commitment to black lives? Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and so for myself, I think, I think that um, that really starts with with funders recognizing that we have inherited an unjust system. And I very much believe that there is a lot that funders can gain from learning about and acknowledging the past and Mm -hmm. specifically in terms of our wealth accumulation and understanding the practices and the policies um, that that privileged uh, white folks and had this system of extraction and control um, and exclusion um, for in for black folks and communities of color. Uh, so, you know, just recognizing that history, recognizing how in, in family philanthropy, when I talk to another next gen person who's in the fifth generation of their family's foundation, I um, I do, you know, remind and I'm vocal about we would not have had Black Family Foundations five generations ago. And sometimes within family philanthropy in particular, folks um, don't think back and, and reflect historically on that, that where when the wealth was accumulated and what was that system then to tie it to how the system might still be unjust now. And I think also recognizing and learning more about how foundations and funders are still benefiting from the monetary privileges of our taxation and legal system that at a minimum funders should be committing to radical ways of of giving and redistributing wealth Mm -hmm. simply because you know we literally have accumulated it um at at such huge amounts so it's, it's something that absolutely must happen yeah i was actually reading something earlier there's a remarkable filmmaker whose name is Arthur Jaffa um, and a piece that he made a number of years ago called love is the message the message is death is 
going to be available on a number of streaming platforms over the next few days. Mm -hmm. But there was a quote um, when I was thinking about this conversation, there was a quote um, from the film um, that what would America be like if we loved black people as much as we love black culture? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, we could sort of say, what would philanthropy be like? <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if we love black people um, as much as we love the culture as yeah. well, right? So yeah. um, what shifts might occur um, mm -hmm. if, if we weren't constantly sort of putting this marginal frame on black communities mm -hmm. um, and thought of them more as um, equal partners in this right. work. Yeah. But I think that um, certainly as it relates to the recent crisis around COVID-19 and the pandemic, sure. um, part of what I've seen um, in terms of um, how people are creating these kind of mutual aid funds, mm -hmm. um, they were the leaders um, and the first to step up, folks in Seattle and, and other places, sort of creating these funds that were targeted towards communities of color, BIPOC communities, really lifting up trans and gender nonconforming folks like that. That came out of um, these other kinds of traditions of mm -hmm. supporting folks within their own communities that did not come from philanthropy. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Appreciate you noting that. Mm -hmm. um, so then, as we think toward the future, sort of like present and, and going forward future, um, and we think about the term imaginaries, mm -hmm. how does visioning or imagining the future play a role in your practice? I think in terms of um, Leeway's philanthropic practice, um, you know, part of it was sort of using our vision and imagination to really think about um, how do we create a process and set of structures um, that really um, engages with the communities and constituencies that we want to support. And so, um, and so for us, that looks like um, imagining, you know, sort of a, a very robust kind of community engagement process and, um, you know, in terms of our support for individual artists, like what is it we need to be doing in order to sort of access folks in the community who may not identify as artists or cultural producers who are actually out there and have been out there doing the work um, in some cases for decades. And so this idea of imagining kind of a hybrid kind of practice um, that is, you know, certainly about distributing the money in terms of grants and, and other things, but what are the other kinds of supports that the communities that we're involved with need access to, to help um, sort of leverage whatever experience they have with Leeway um, for future opportunities. So really thinking about um, what we do is sort of providing that introduction or gateway for some folks um, and creating something that didn't necessarily exist elsewhere. So I think, again, I think this idea of imagination um, is vitally important. And in some ways, it's kind of everything. It's, it's what everything else rests upon mm -hmm. for us, for sure. Mm -hmm. 
And um, and so for us, in terms of, of visioning uh, the the future, well, definitely part of it is trying to build more community um, that you know just recognizing and um, and a bit sort of going back to your question of of the responsibility of funders to um, commit to justice for Black lives. It's the the extreme amount of homogeneity in philanthropy it is if if people really were honest about that it would be impossible for people not to advocate for change that um the the sort of spectrum of of ideas and ways of giving or solutions or you know ways of working together better that we've thought about in philanthropy has been so limited by um, not not having as much diversity or, or different ways of thinking or different um, histories. So a lot um, of our envisioning the future is is trying to bring people in to to generate new ideas, and and we are doing that a lot in how we support leadership development. For the most part, all of our the organizations that we fund are organizations that are led by folks of color or LGBTQ folks. Um, mm-hmm. That's a very direct way that we're purposely uh, wanting to in, invest in uh, in the future, recognizing how leadership development in um, has has not been supported in many communities by philanthropy. So, so really, you know, just doing what we can, moving money to allow more visionaries to enter into the conversations is a huge part. And also, I think, recognizing for ourselves and, and being open to failure, but actually mm. seeing that um, that process itself is critical and fundamental for us to achieve our our larger goals and also to just taking action. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you, you know, instead of over-processing and overthinking, if philanthropy took as much money as it put into data and evaluation and took and, you know, put it into visioning and imagining and collaboration with communities, that's, that's so exciting to think about. You know, we uh, just recently have, have started to work on something which, which we are just, you know, we're sort of calling, if we were to call it anything, trust black women, um, Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. um, we decided as a family um, to take a certain amount of money and um, reach out to uh, different leaders in um, the community, uh, black women inclusive of of self-identified women, trans folks and non-binary folks, Mm -hmm. um, and, and just ask those leaders, you know, if you had $25,000 $25,000 to give to an organization that you feel is promoting and supporting um, the leadership development of, of Black folks and the movement right now, where would you give it? And um, and following their lead and then uh, sending money to those organizations and um, and also, but also in that process, learning from those folks about why they suggested the, org- the, the organizations that they recommended um, we also learned things around folks then suggesting um, funding non-501c3s or different um, types of organizations that we wouldn't have thought of thinking and that have also required us to change some of our grant-making practices. Um, we don't know what's going to come from it. And, um, you know, by typical philanthropy standards, it might, you know, 
it might fail, it might, you know, be uh, successful, but um, a lot of that visioning is just being openness to other folks also uh, having the ability and having the resources to, to imagine and also support the creation of a different future. That's great. Um, and really excited to hear more about that project, Sparks. <laughs> so before we, yeah, before we go, uh, are there any final thoughts that any of you have for our listeners? As I was thinking of, of the final thoughts that I might say, I was actually looking initially at some some quotes that are really important or have been impactful to me throughout my journey. If you'll humor me, one of them definitely that came to mind was was an Audre Lorde quote, and it's sort of reflective to of, for me of my own journey and 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 the changing the system quote and envisioning the future, but. Um, the quote, the quote was, um, for those of us who are forged in the crucible of difference, um, note, we know that survival is not an academic skill. It's about learning to take our differences and make them strengths. For the master's tools will never allow us to dismantle the master's house. It may allow us to temporarily beat him at his game, but it will never bring about genuine change. Um, that, that is something that I've, that quote is something that I've held very close. Um, mm -hmm. And can you know continuously encourages me to both um, recognize my own identity and bring that forward, um, but also see um, the differences. You know, being sort of outside the the status quo and philanthropy, um, really seeing and believing that that those differences and the differences that that I can um, share about in the field of family philanthropy. Um, that those are actually strengths and having more of those ways of thinking will actually strengthen philanthropy overall and um, and then completely going out of the box and trying to come up with um, new new ideas and and ways of working that don't reinforce um, systems of white supremacy but um, actually create whole new ways of of uh, pushing back and changing this this system um, that we're stuck in so yeah, that, that would be my final thought. Great. Thanks. Denise? I guess for me, I, I would really challenge people to reimagine, um, you know, reimagine their philanthropic practice in a way um, that invites more people into the process of um, redistributing the wealth, as was mentioned before. I think yeah. that um, we need to be thinking about the ways in which what the kinds of decisions that we're making now in in this present moment, the ways in which we're going to be able to kind of reap the benefits or the results of that as we move forward and um, and really think about what's important. There's a lot of discussion right now around um, participatory and trust-based philanthropy. And I think... Um, if trust wasn't the basis of what we were doing before, what was, I guess I would ask the question and, and challenge people to think about the ways in which, um, they can trust the people who are most deeply affected, mm -hmm. um, by the issues that concern us, um, to have solutions, to be part of building those solutions. Mm -hmm. Well, Thank you both. Thank you, Denise and Sparks, for this conversation and for participating in our Racial Equity podcast series. 
Um, Thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. You are both making decisions within your foundations that center people and communities that have been ignored. And it's great that we're able to learn more about the how and the way that you are doing it for others to learn from. To our listeners, we look forward to continuing these conversations, so be sure to tune in to the GIA Racial Equity Podcast Series, and be sure to follow us on Facebook at GI Arts, Twitter at GI Arts, and Instagram at Grantmakers in the Arts. If you have any questions, you can feel free to reach out to me, Sherilyn Seely, at Sherilyn at GIArts.org. And lastly, as Toni Morrison said, if you can't imagine it, you can't have it. So listeners, keep imagining, keep taking action, and thank you so much for listening.